Hello, I'm Mary Nightingale with the fourth in the series of Piper Podcasts from the specialist investor in consumer branded businesses. Through their 30 plus years of experience, Piper have identified three critical stages in a business's development, which it calls 71770. The key points in a brand's growth cycle where there's a real need for a step change. It could be as the number of sites increases from 7 to 17 to 70, or as turnover grows from 7 million to 17 million to 70 million pounds. Today I'm with Aj Jayawikrama, founder of not one, but two highly successful restaurant brands, the Latin American chain Las Iguanas and Turtle Bay, which has almost 50 authentic Caribbean restaurants. I'm going to be talking to Ajit about the secrets of his success and how he avoided the pitfalls along that 7-17-70 journey. Well, hello, Ajit. It's lovely hello. to meet you. So talk to me about where you are on that journey. Describe where your business is. So uh, we have almost 50 restaurants planned, ready to open. We're currently at 43. We have two in Germany and we are nearly 70 million turnover. And do you see that 70 point in the turnover as being a key point? When I first heard about it through Piper chairman Crispin Twiddell, I heard it, but I didn't believe it. But now we are coming up to 70. I do believe it. And I think it is a critical point in the business. Well, describe why. Because it seems a bit neat, doesn't it? How does it it actually does seem very neat. And I think for whatever reason it might be, nature or, or or by desire, some things need to change and move on and evolve at that level of a size of a business. The approach to business just needs to change. It, it needs to become more organised. It needs to become more than one-man team. It needs to bring in new talent. It needs to learn how to manage scale and how to deliver consistent to the consumer as a brand Uh, and those requires probably different processes procedures and different kinds of people around you so I can feel that and I've probably been feeling that for the last year or so that the organization need to evolve and change but knowing exactly what to do is possibly a degree of trial and error Okay, so we'll be talking about that in more detail later. But before we get on to the business, just tell me a little bit about yourself, because you weren't born in this country, were you? No, I was uh, born in uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, My parents emigrated in the late 70s with the family, primarily to give my sister, who's deaf, a better chance and education in life. So I was 15 when I moved to UK. I started schooling in a local North London comprehensive and the journey within UK began from there, really. It must have been quite a tough transition, wasn't it? Um, At that time, being honest with you, I didn't think it was a tough transition. I think when you're a teenager, you just get on with things. I didn't speak English. I had to go to special English lessons after the assembly, stand in front of a gate in uh, Southgate Comprehensive School. But... At that time, I thought I wasn't listening to my father, but I think I did listen to him. He said, just get up early and work hard and things will be always okay. And what was the biggest challenge? Can you remember? I think the biggest challenge was language, friends, community, weather, 
we arrived in March and it was snowing and I saw snow for the first time. <laughs> uh, I thought people were weirdly dressed. And you've got to remember in 1978, Sri Lanka didn't have TV. So we only seen whatever was in a printed media. We hadn't seen British people on a, on a, on a TV screen. So it must have been an enormous change was a, an, for the entire family. It was parents. an enormous change for the entire family. Uh, but my father, he was unusual in the sense he, he adopted an entirely different attitude to what might be regarded politically correct now. I do remember the very first day uh, we came down uh, to breakfast and the first thing he, he said to us was, from now on there will be no one to wash your plates because there were no domestic staff. Because you'd had quite an affluent life, hadn't you? A relatively, relatively affluent life. So you got to now have your breakfast and cl- uh, clean your own bowl. And I tried cornflakes for the first time. Until then, I was having roti and coconut fish curry in the morning. And it was just a different lifestyle. Yeah. Sweet tea and what have you. So we thought, well, this is not fun. Then we couldn't leave the house because it was too cold for us. So we were stuck in the house uh, quite a bit. And that evening, my father came home with the Times and said, you're going to read this every day so you become really good at English. And that night at dinner, he also said, in this house, we're not going to speak Sinhalese anymore. We're only going to speak English. So it was a huge change for a 14, 15-year-old boy to be stuck in a house, not eating the food that you want, can't go out to play, didn't have your mates. Didn't speak the language. Didn't speak the language. And how easy was it to make new friends? Did you encounter any hostility from people? Uh, it was a very different place, this country back it then, was, wasn't it? It was a different place, but, you know, it's only with hindsight and what is going on about how people feel about inclusion right now, where Britain is such a much more of an inclusive country, where I can look back and say, my God, it wasn't then. So I do remember people saying things to me, but nonetheless, I sort of thought it's just normal. I didn't rise up to any of those things. And uh, making friends wasn't that difficult. I think I've always spoken to people and got on with people, so it, it, it stood quite well. And what about your, your sister? Did it actually work out better? For it her, did think? work out, well, in all relative terms. You know, my sister's married to another deaf person uh, and they have a child. She works for Canon Electronics doing a, uh, some kind of electronic-style job uh, and she's independent. You know, she has her own property. So my parents are very content that, that they were able to provide her with independence and means of living. All right, well, back to you. You studied economics at university yes. and uh, and you took a job at McDonald's. I did. Was that an early indication, do you think, of an interest in the hospitality industry? Uh, no, it was an early interest in getting my own car. Ah. Yeah, so I started at McDonald's a bit earlier than university. Uh, when I was 16, I went and got a job in McDonald's at 95p an hour because I wanted to buy my own car when I was 18. I tried saving a lot and my mum helped me out as well. So I got my first car there. What did you get? Um, I got an Austin 1100. Great car. <laughs> Great car. Colour? Uh, darkish blue at the bottom and whitish cream on the top. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were so proud of it. But, it, I mean, it was a good grounding, isn't it? Joking apart. A really hard graft. Yes. Looking back to those days, what did you learn from that first job, do you think? 
Well, I was actually pretty impressed with McDonald's. And obviously, that was my first job. It was very well organized. It had lots of training, lots of structure, badges and stars so you could progress through. I think it's a different style of management to now. It's relatively command control kind of management. But it focused on giving a consistent product to its its audience, really. And McDonald's ability to innovate and continue to go get going even after all these years still you know, surprises me. Yeah. You know. Was it a, a good grounding, do you think, for every entrepreneur? Would you, would you recommend that kind of job, a starter? Well, it depends on the, the kind of entrepreneurship you want. But I, I went into high street food and drinks retailing, and that was probably a good early start. And uh, I didn't think I would be doing it, but that's what I ended up doing. And what did you think you wanted to do back then? I had a burning ambition to succeed and do better, but I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. Uh, And actually, that's why I chose economics. (laughs) All I do know is my father said, become an accountant. And I thought I didn't, because he was an accountant, I didn't want to do that. My mum was a nurse and she said, oh, become a doctor. It's great. You can both and so you can get a job anywhere in the world. So it was slightly contradictory. On one hand, my dad was saying, we're going to stay in England. You're going to assimilate and get on with life on the other hand you're saying get those jobs because you can get one of those jobs anywhere in the world then I'll, it's a bit confusing so are we staying in England or are we are we moving around so but I didn't want to do either of those so what was the next step then you did your economics at university and then what then I went into work for a fashion wholesaler called Rockford Fashions and our job was to to identify the latest trends, make them and sell them into the retailers. So the retailers were Dorothy Perkins, Miss Selfridges, I'm giving my age away, uh, <laughs> uh, those kind of people. And I did it for a little while. Yeah. And I realised it was a very tough game. And that's when I decided I would go and do an MBA. I just felt I didn't have enough depth and breadth to progress from there, I felt I was I would be in a particular part. It, it didn't it didn't quite interest me. So talk to me about the first restaurant business then, Las Iguanas. How did that start? After doing my MBA, I've got a job in a consultancy called David Peak Associate, which is a retail consultancy. You know, that, that was the era of big shopping centre and city centre redevelopment. So I worked there for a while, then. I joined a company called CACI, which is a consultancy on retail uh, consumer profiling. And when I was there, I got made redundant. And that really was the ticking point for me. Uh, in the sense, I just thought, I worked hard, I've got two degrees, I'm not going to let this happen to me again. And it was a bit of a shock. I thought, gosh, you know. So I started thinking, I want to work for myself. Because I worked near Common Garden, there were lots of restaurants I used to go out and, and socialise in. And I thought, that's that's a quite good business. I don't know how to get into it. So I actually placed an advert in Evening Standard for chefs. Because by this stage, I had thought that I should be doing uh, some kind of a more exotic, different kind of food. 
And in my head, it was I was going to do Thai food. Late 80s, early 90s at this point. This was, uh, uh, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. The economy's going down, high unemployment and all that. So I went and looked at a restaurant unit in uh, Blackheath. Didn't understand what I was doing or size of it. Uh, I thought it's a Thai restaurant. I just say, who can cook Thai food? I put an advert in and I interviewed a few chefs in uh, hotel receptions. So that was the beginning of the journey. Then there was a restaurant became available in Bristol in a not particularly good location. And by this stage, I had gone for a fly drive in California. And I thought, it's quite interesting, quite a lot of Mexican food. No one in Britain knows much about it. I can become knowledgeable about it. No way am I going to get criticised even if I got it wrong, Mm -hmm. because not enough people know about it. And I sort of understood it. And there was a couple of Mexican restaurants in Common Garden. Cafe Pacifico is the one I remember. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I thought, hmm, I can probably do this one. And that's how it all started. And you went into business with a friend? I went with a, a business with a school friend, yes, yes, called Erin. And how did it actually start? Because you had no money, did you, to put into I this? had no money. I couldn't go to my parents because they were disappointed because they had come to the UK, their oldest son isn't working, has got an MBA, but hasn't got a professional qualification. For my parents, doctors, accountants, engineers, lawyers are more valuable than entrepreneurs. It's a traditional thing, I guess. It's they, a traditional they, they wanted thing. you to be a success in, yeah, in the I've got, market. Yeah, I've got they... half a dozen doctor cousins. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you had you had no money. No you money. weren't going to get it from your parents. So what did you do? How did you get started? So I went to see my bank manager in Westry in Sheffield, where I did my MBA in university, and his name was Mr. Blood. This is the truth. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not making it out. And uh, I went with a business plan in my brand new neck suit, and presented it on an A3 folder and said, "This is what I want to do." And he looked over his half-moon glasses and said, 95% of all restaurants fail and you've got no assets and I'm not going to give you any money. Thanks, Mr Blood. How much did you need at this stage? Can you remember? I didn't know how much I needed. I was just trying to get how much he could lend at that stage. (laughs) So I then phoned him again and just said, you're quite right, I'm not going to do a restaurant, but I would like to buy a car. I was in a lovely Golf GTI. Can you give me £10,000? And he said, yes, I can do a loan which doesn't require guarantee, but the interest rate was 19.5%. Wow, yeah. And this was a hyperinflationary period, you might recall. Yeah, I do. And I I did take the £10,000. I had that money in about four days in my account. And uh, I used that to open the first restaurant. But how? What was how? the nuts so the, and bolts of So the nuts and I mean, bolts of it, there was a restaurant it. that was shut down called Giovanni's and it had about 60 covers, needed to create a impact of a Latin American restaurant. I went to the library and got lots of books about South America and so on and so forth. There was a black and white picture of a native South American Indian holding an iguana And I just thought, that sounds quite nice, iguanas, las iguanas, you know. And and hence, las iguanas was born. I just wanted it it to sound different uh, to any other restaurant. 
I didn't want to call it Pedro's or anything else like that. So that's how Lasaguanas was born, as simple as that. And how quickly did it become a success? Because it did become very successful, it, it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it became successful from day one, really. Uh, you know, it started making money. I didn't pay myself for the first year and I lived on tips only. I read some story that you actually used doorknob from your flat. Yeah, so the, 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 the day we the were, uh, yeah, I remember it was 2nd of April 1991, I think, when I opened the first restaurant. Didn't have a door handle. And I sort of uh, ran down to my flat in Bristol along the harbour side. And I didn't have a screwdriver. I used a knife and I unplucked a D-shaped handle. And in fact, that door handle is still there in the same building. When did you actually tell your parents that you were doing this restaurant venture? I didn't tell them till I had three restaurants. Wow. I didn't, I didn't want to say it because I didn't feel it was successful or secure enough to tell them. But once you had three restaurants, you felt you were doing well enough. Yes. And what was their reaction at that point? Were they positive uh, about it? Their reaction was, uh, uh, <laughs> they call restaurants hotels because it's a Sri Lankan colloquialism. Uh, my dad said, did we really come all this far so you can uh, run a hotel? You've got to remember the hotel word is a slightly different meaning yeah, yeah. to that generation of Sri Lankans. <laughs> How did the story end for Latiguanas? In 2009-10, I was in Salvador in Brazil with a few of the team and the design team. For some reason, I get dengue fever. So I came home, they put me into the local Bristol hospital, and they couldn't work out what was wrong. As it transpired, I had dengue fever. Dengue fever has a very, very high mortality rate. And while I was in this isolation unit, I was thinking, gosh, what am I going to do? And, and I think that was a moment when I thought, I like to do something different. Because you'd had private investment. You? Yes, you'd, I had. You'd had Piper involved. Piper involved you? and Piper had sold by this stage but I carried on with the new private equity investor. Tell me about the challenges of working with a friend because you'd started the business with your with your old school friend hadn't yeah. you and how did that work out? Was it a difficult? Well at early stage was very easy because I ran the business for the first five years on my own while he carried on with the job. Mm. The second five years was pretty good and the last five years was somewhat straining because I think when people work very closely together, that you lose some of your friendship or, or you're in each other's pockets. Or the fact is you're in a very intense period. It's been like a, it's been like a pop band, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you're working and touring together all day and eventually you want space. So yeah. you went solo. I decided I wanted to go solo, so I came out. But I didn't sell all of my shares till 2015. <laughs> You're listening to The Piper Podcast with me, Mary Nightingale. I'm talking to Aj Jaya Wickrama, founder of the Turtle Bay restaurant chain. During that dengue fever phase, I thought I want to do something different. So I decided to go and see Crispin because I worked very closely with him whilst at Las Iguanas and we hadn't probably seen each other for maybe a year. I went and saw him in his farm and uh, he said, what are you going to do, Aj? And I said, uh, I've got another idea that I might start something new. And he said, well, you're pretty good at property. Why don't you do that? I said, no. I said, I've got another idea. And he said what it was. So I told him it was a Caribbean idea. And I, I went home. 
Then about four weeks later, he phoned me up and said, where have you got to that idea? Typical Crispin kind of a question. <laughs> and I thought, mm, you didn't show any interest. <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't say that. <laughs> but he became my founding co-director of Turtle Bay. And where did the idea for Turtle Bay? Why Caribbean? I was watching, my kids were young, the girls were young, X Factor with them. And when they were young, they were quite obsessed by X Factor. And a girl called Leona Lewis won it. And as an immigrant, for me, I thought it's incredible, this West Indian heritage girl. And given my own experience in Britain, I thought, what what a difference. 22 million ordinary people had voted for Leona Lewis. Her race, her colour, her ethnic background didn't matter. And as I was sitting there, I thought, this is, isn't it funny? This, no, uh, you only see Caribbean food in festivals or in, you know, not particularly mainstream locations. I should think about that. Was it a light bulb moment in a sense? It was a it was a semi light bulb moment. Then you start thinking you you know throw your idea around in your head in days, weeks, and months to come, and it sort of stays in your head. You keep thinking about what are you going to do different? What are you going to do better? And I started going to lots of Caribbean takeaways and restaurants around the country. I think I probably ate in about 50 of them over that period. And the idea sort of, a, you know, we, we had to create an entirely new dining and drinking experience. So you started Turtle Bay in 2011. How different was the setting up process to Las Iguanas? I mean, you had more money, I guess, and uh, more bit, experience. Um, and that count, the, both of those counts a lot. By this stage, I knew lots of areas of setting up the business. Property, finance, shareholders, management, kitchen design, interior design, legal. So it was quite helpful. And any mistakes you made in the past, you knew how quickly to get to the answer. And you did move quickly, didn't you? We did move quickly. And Just give me an idea of the growth of, of, of the business. You opened how many? In the first 12 months... We opened two, and the whole idea was to work out whether it's right. The next year, we opened the third restaurant, and the purpose of that was to see whether we can get the economic model right. In other words, it is financially sustainable and viable. Then, when we were just about to open our fourth restaurant, Piper invested again. How much did it change between... Number one and number four, when Piper came in again? Surprisingly little. That's the thing. Because that the, uh, I mentioned the idea had been kicking off in my head for some time. When we did it, unbelievably, lots of things fell into right place. So, for instance, I wanted Turtle Bay to be a, both a restaurant and a bar. Doing a restaurant and a bar is quite difficult. In the sense that there are two differing consumer bases. Diners coming for a dining experience, the bar people coming for a bar experience. Mixing both of them in the same space is quite tricky. It gives operational complexity. It gives consumer confusion. It needs staff to be of a particular way and so on. So by getting the layout and the design and the space right, we got the offer right. And that hasn't changed fundamentally. And whenever we change that or when we don't get that right, our sites don't perform. The other thing was I wanted to be quite democratic a kind of place in the sense I wanted to attract from a broader profile of people. 
So it's fairly socially mixed. We get a lot of millennials. 50% of our customers are under 35. 50% of them are over 35. It's very unusual for a high street brand to be like that. And that is his strength. And that is is also his opportunity to make sure that we address these competing things all the time. All right. So for those listening who haven't been to one of your Turtle Bay restaurants, what's it like? You open the door. And what do you see? You should be transported to somewhere else. It would be bright, colourful, quirky, mixture of urban and beach influences, lovely bar, usually island bar, people standing around, reggae uh, music all round. Reggae has a special feeling, feel-good factor about it. Open kitchen, movement in the space, happy warmth, and it's about having good fun, people chit-chatting, and tapping their feet all at the same time. And they're drinking rum. They're drinking rum. And they're eating jerk chicken. Jerk chicken, curry goat, that kind of thing. Jerk chicken, yes, I understand. Everyone loves that. But goat curry, I'm surprised this is popular. Yes, so when I was creating the menu, I made sure there was accessibility in the menu, but also difference in the menu. And one of the things which is quite unique to the Caribbean is goat is widely eaten. And uh, I felt we had to bring goat to the high street. In fact, everyone said, don't bring goat to the high street because it's bony, it's tough. But the curry goat properly cooked is a wonderful dish. It's been growing steadily from day one. We buy incredible amount of goat. How much goat would you buy? uh, Possibly up to 50 metric tonnes of goat meat. Every uh, every year. Wow. And where, have, where do you get 50 metric tons? We, we, we of source goat? from local British farms, uh, Spanish farms, and French farms because in Western Europe it's mainly done for milk. But it is very popular. and With British consumers. Yeah, and people keep buying it. It's got lower cholesterol than most meat and it's a very healthy protein. Talk to me about the 7 1770 journey then and the particular challenges of that naught to seven stage that you were at when Piper first came in? In Turtle Bay, the naught to seven wasn't particularly challenging for me because I had done it before. So I just knew exactly what to do each stage of the way. So I kept the head office costs low. We only had an office in 2014. I had the right mentality of a startup founder, I guess, which is to keep your cost low, work your assets hard, focus on sales and and, and profitability. So for me, zero to seven wasn't a big deal. Actually, seven to 17 wasn't a big deal because I've been on this journey before. So it was quite easy to to manage. And when you start a first business, you might not get the very best and the most capable joining your business because those who are most capable and doing well want to remain in good, solid businesses Startup businesses are fragile in many respects. So you're having to work with your own team and you exp- you hope they can grow. Yeah. And recognising where their limits are, when to bring new people, is an art rather than a science. And that is uh, one of the difficulties of, of fast-paced growth. Because at this point you were opening a lot of sites every year. We were, yeah. yeah. What was your biggest growth? I think we opened 10 restaurants in one year. Wow. Who are the people that actually run your restaurants? So the restaurant typically will have a general manager and, a, and an assistant general manager, a head chef and a sous chef. 
depending on the size of the, the volume of turnover, it will have a bar manager too. So basically, that's the structure of a, of, a, of a restaurant. And it's incredibly important to get those those customer-facing people right, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Everything you're telling me is about the atmosphere and about the mm. that the offer is all about warmth mm. and fun. And, mm-hmm. But they've got to be able to run a business too. They, they've got to be able to run a business too. Mm-hmm. And these are two competing things in their head, you know, being very good at running a business and being efficient and being warm and friendly and cuddly are sort of almost two opposite sides of the brain. So there are very few individuals doing that. And that's why we spend quite a lot of time on psychometrics and things just to understand who are the right people for our business is. Looking back, mm. you know, obviously benefit of hindsight is a yes. wonderful thing, isn't it? What, what, if anything, would you have done differently? I would have probably started building the head office support team, probably about 12 sites. But I think with my experience and knowledge, I think... I probably thought I didn't need it. <laughs> arrogance, maybe? I think rather than arrogance, I think I was a man in a hurry. So I felt building this is just taking a lot of energy away from me. So your brain is always competing uh, all the time about doing the right things and in which order. Uh, I can see what was happening in the casual dining in our sector. Everyone was growing fast. There's quite a lot of money being thrown out. And I just wanted to make sure Turtle Bay was the number one brand for Caribbean food and drink. And that required a particular level of focus to get there because the barriers to entry in our sector are quite low. So the building a team takes sometimes years, but building restaurants also takes years. So it was a chicken and egg situation. So with hindsight, I would probably grown slower, build the team up, faster but you were a man in a hurry and you were confident and you felt like you could do it and indeed you did do it right yes I guess I did (laughs) moving on now to the next milestone which is the 70 yes what are you having to do now to prepare for that because you're not far off are you we're not far off we are having to do quite a lot so almost all methods of working that was right, let's say, when we were 20 restaurants, is probably wrong now. Explain. So let's take our training systems, how our staff and our team interacts with it, how we train people, how, how we impart information, communicating. It's all a bit dated. It needs to change. How we develop food needs to change. In the past, we only had to talk to maybe 20 head chefs. Now we got to talk to nearly 50 head chefs across two countries. So how we specify a dish, uh, your South engineer's perfect dish, needs quite a lot of thinking. So the lead time is a lot longer. It's a bit like working with fashion. You know, you're working 18 months ahead for the next season's outfits. So almost everything is different. Talk to me a little bit then more about the decision to take outside investment, why you wanted that, and I, I know your link with Piper previously, but explain that process and how it's worked. Well, I worked with Piper before. Yeah, We got on very well. Uh, I think the team are fantastic. I think they particularly understand entrepreneurs and managers. I think they're a very considered team. 
I like the fact they only do consumer. They don't do electronics or, or other things. I don't know, manufacturing bricks or mortar. And the team themselves have been there a long time. And I think relationships count a lot. And I, I think it leads to trust. It leads to better decisions. It leads to considered outcomes. I've worked with other VCs before, and this is no reflection on them. When we did come to, to Turtle Bay, I said, if we are going to do one, we'll only do it with Piper Crispin. And I wasn't planning to do one, but it made all the sense to do one with them. And what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who would be perhaps thinking of, of, of going down a similar path? I can quite easily say this with some experience. I think there's money everywhere, but the quality of that money varies depending on the quality of the people. So in the short term, it's really easy to take more money from somebody because somebody will always pay you more for your shares. But do you want to work with them for the next five, seven, eight, ten years when things are going to get tough, things never go according to plan, and who do you want to work with? And if you can answer that magic question and say, things might get tough, it might not be what I want to do, and the people I'm with will back me, help me, make sure that we all benefit. And I think that's the question to ask. So I decided on Piper uh, to do with the quality of the people. When I say quality of the money, what I mean is the quality of the people who are dealing with the money. You want people who back you when things are up and when things are down to make sure that we all come out of the other end looking good. What piece of advice would you give to your younger self? You know, Aj, who had his... 1100 is, you know, his, his first car was thinking about where to start and where to go. What would you say? I would probably say, God, I wasted a lot of time trying to teach everything myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, get advice, get help. Get help. I don't, I don't particularly feel I've achieved a great deal. I just think I've just been on a journey. Are you serious? I'm, I'm dead serious. You yeah. don't feel like a success? I, I don't. I just think I've just, I, I don't. That's the honest truth. <laughs> well, you can't relax and enjoy it. I do relax and enjoy it. I mean, I, I have what do a, you do to enjoy it? I, I have very simple taste. I walk my dog, I, I eat out, I ride my bike and I go on holidays, that kind of thing. What comes next? Well, I haven't really thought about it, being honest with you, because I, I'm a completer and finisher. When I'm in it, I'm in it fully. So in Turtle Bay, I think the journey isn't finished. I think the moment I feel it's finishing, my mind will go somewhere else and it will bring opportunities. When I get distracted with other things, that means my mind is saying, you're done here, Edge, or you had enough of it, or you're not enjoying it. And I haven't reached that stage yet. Do you still have your parents? I, I have my mum. My father passed away last October. What do they but think? My, do they my think? dad, about 15 years ago, I had a Mercedes car and he said, I think that's the, the best thing you ever done is to get yourself a Mercedes. You've always driven Italian alphas which fall apart. Uh, and I thought that was his way of saying well done. <laughs> Aj, Jaya Wickrema, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you been listening to the Piper podcast with me, Mary Nightingale. Next time I'll be talking to Charlie Bigham, founder of the upmarket and delicious Charlie Bigham's Ready Meals. I hope you can join me then.